Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Oisver Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This article comes from Vice, and they've got a report that people are trusting deep fake faces more than real faces. A lot of companies are experimenting with AI-generated faces for marketing and more, but we may be passing Uncanny Valley. Mm -hmm. In a study published Tuesday in the peer-reviewed journal PNAS, Researchers from the Lancaster University in the UK and University of California, Berkeley, conducted three experiments to determine if and how people could differentiate real from AI faces, also known as deep fakes. If you have a chance to go to the Vice article, I highly recommend it because they do have a representative set of matched real and synthetic faces from the study. As far as the results go, in one experiment, the researchers asked 315 participants to look at faces and determine whether they were AI or real. The group had an accuracy rate of 48.2%. Then in a second experiment, 219 participants were given feedback about their guesses as they went along, which did improve their score up to 59%. Mm. But the third experiment showed 223 participants more faces, but this time, asked them to rate the faces on a scale of perceived trustworthiness. And they thought that since people are pretty good at making snap judgments about whether to trust someone based on faces alone, they were hoping this might correlate with detecting fake versus real faces. But people rated fake faces as being slightly more trustworthy than real ones. I mean, it's just because they're hot, you know? (laughs) Really. You've got this perfect symmetry that none of the deep fake faces I've ever seen are like unusual. Yeah. They did note that white faces, both male and female, were the most likely to be classified incorrectly. And their hypothesis? They're overrepresented in the Style GAN2 training data set and are therefore more realistic. It's just the classic data problem. Garbage in, garbage out. You got a whole lot of white faces because that's the majority of who's being represented in media. You're going to get a better white deep fake. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, if you think about like 48%, it's not even 48% because you got 50-50 odds on yes, no. It's basically a 0% ability to tell. (laughs) It's, it's, you have a slightly worse than half chance, which means you're more than likely going to get it wrong. So uh, enjoy (laughs) your internet, (laughs) y'all. I hope you can uh, make sure that you get some real info before flying halfway across the country to meet that Tinder date. Good luck. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from People.com. It's titled, A Toddler Diagnosed with Rare Uncombable Hair Syndrome. It Brings a Smile to People's Faces. (laughs) And... There is a pretty severe case of nominative determinism going on. This baby's name is Lachlan Samples, or Lock Samples for short. (laughs) And the byline is 16-month-old Lock Samples is one of just 100 known cases of the extremely rare syndrome, which makes his hair fragile but leaves him otherwise healthy. And... (laughs) 
I'd never heard of the syndrome before. It's worth no. checking out the photo because it really does look like all of his hair just sticks straight out. He almost looks kind of like Einstein because, you know, it doesn't huh. mat down in the normal way. It's like very thin. It makes him look like a rock star, honestly, and pretty <laughs> badass. So he looks like he's getting electrocuted at all times. Like it's just. Yeah, basically. That's okay. exactly right. a good way to describe it. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. Um, so when Sample's born, he had jet black hair not too far off from his mom, Caitlin's huh. color. But by the time he was six months old, that hair was replaced by what Caitlin and her husband, Caleb, affectionately called peach fuzz. She tells people, we were like, huh, what is this? We knew it was different, but we didn't know exactly how. And then it kept growing and growing. <laughs> by nine months, Locke's hair was white blonde, super soft and sticking straight up out of his head. Caitlin, 33, from Roswell, Georgia, says with a laugh, people were definitely noticing it. That's also when she got a message on Instagram from a stranger who asked if Locke had been diagnosed with uncombable hair syndrome. Which sounds like an insult if someone just sends that to you. That doesn't sound yeah. like a genuine concern. <laughs> yeah, like what kind of a name is that? But I mean, really, it makes sense because you can't comb it because it gets damaged otherwise. Oh, so, okay. She says, I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Is something wrong with my baby? I went into tailspins on Google. <laughs> so Caitlin called their pediatrician who said they had never heard of the syndrome and directed her to a specialist at nearby Emory Hospital. We went to see her and she said she'd only seen this once in 19 years. Hmm. She didn't think it was uncombable hair syndrome because of how rare it is, but they took samples and a pathologist looked at it under a special microscope. Thankfully, <laughs> the syndrome only seems to affect Locke's hair. She says, they said because he was developing normally in every other area of his life that we didn't need to be worried about anything else being a concern. So Caitlin tried to learn more about the syndrome, but with so few cases, there's very little information online or even mm. among specialists. She did, however, find a Facebook group of parents of kids with the syndrome or people who have it themselves. She says, that's been a great source of comfort, and we share pictures and talk about different things. <laughs> it's cool to see how the older kid's hair has changed over the years. For some people, Ooh. it does not go away, and for others, it becomes a little bit more manageable. <laughs> so right now, Caitlin lets Locke's hair just be in its free form. She says, I hardly have to wash it unless he's literally playing in the dirt because it doesn't get greasy. <laughs> what? It's incredibly soft. Yeah, because I guess it just doesn't generate the oil in the natural way. I mean, yeah. I would have to look up more about this syndrome to really understand why. But yeah, I mean. Almost like a dandelion head, right? Like they've just got. That is sweet... also an extremely accurate way to describe it. <laughs> okay. And it makes sense because if it's affecting the follicle, like mm -hmm. that's what it's really affecting to affect the hair coming out of it. So it could be affecting the oil secretions and any. Anything else happening uh, Yeah, good point. Good point. I highly recommend checking out this article for the photos because one, Locke is very cute and Aww. the hair is also very funny. So <laughs> this was kind of a joy to just pick out. <laughs> I will say it would be nice to never have to worry about a bad hair day. Because they're all bad hair days, which makes them all normal hair days. Like that's, you know, it's one one less thing on your shoulders as a child. Yeah. And at the very least, if you have issues with it, you can just shave it. You that's know? true. He can always do the cue ball look, which is very, very good. I'm in favor of that. FYI, <laughs> yeah. in case anyone wanted to know. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we don't talk a lot about current political events on this podcast, but we have an article here from Wired that manages to provide an interesting angle on the otherwise horrific situation in Ukraine right now. <gasps> 
It's called Ukraine's Volunteer IT Army is Hacking in Uncharted Territory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, of course, the current invasion began on February 24th. And just two days later, on February 26th, Mikhailo Fedorov, who is Ukraine's deputy prime minister and minister for digital transformation, announced through his official channel on the Telegram app that the military was forming a volunteer cyber army. And the cool thing is this isn't like a hiring announcement where you might imagine, you know, maybe they're going to assemble a team of people inside a government computer lab. This is a truly online crowdsourced effort that any Ukrainian can sign up for and get assigned tasks that are appropriate to their skill level. And so far, around 175,000 people have signed up. Wow. So one of the first things the channel's administrators asked subscribers to do, for example, was to launch distributed denial of service attacks against more than 25 Russian websites, including utility companies, banks, government sites and state news channels. And it's been working. Most of the sites they've targeted have been struggling to stay online for any length of time since all this started. Because it's the kind of thing that many computer professionals know how to do. They've just never had a reason to, right? They're good guys. But Mm -hmm. now they're very motivated. Meanwhile, for users who aren't necessarily professionals in the hacking space, there are other tasks like mass reporting certain YouTube channels that are spreading misinformation. Because, again, we all know how to do it. But when huge numbers of people act collectively, it turns out it's actually pretty effective. Now, to be fair, most experts agree that this really is more about sending a message and being a nuisance rather than doing any critical damage. Jake Williams, an incident responder and former NSA hacker, said, The idea that you're going to grab this ragtag group of folk, even if they have an extensive pen testing background, that they're going to somehow hack into the Kremlin's networks and get valuable intelligence that's going to change the course, that's fantasy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Russia is notorious for having their own hackers as well. Mm -hmm. Prior to the invasion, they launched their own cyber attack on a Ukrainian bank and took down Ukrainian government websites. The key difference, though, is that the average Russian citizen is not falling all over themselves to get involved in this, whereas every Ukrainian citizen has a vested interest in stopping or at least slowing down the attack in any way they Mm -hmm. can. And the public response has been so effective so far that they've now expanded into launching DDoS attacks on specific websites in places like Belarus that are known to be staunch allies of Putin. And I think, you know, part of it is a hearts and minds operation, too. You know, if they can make life inconvenient for the average Russian citizen without going overboard and taking out things like healthcare systems that innocent people rely on, maybe they can drum up more support within Russia to force Putin to back down from this craziness. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't have any jokes to make about this one. It's just a little (laughs) flicker of inspirational hope in a sea of sadness. I like the idea of everybody just getting online and having a part to play. I think that's really cool. It is, but it's still war and it's still warfare. No, it's not good. Absolutely. (laughs) The fact is we've been fighting a disinformation war at least since the beginning of the Trump administration and arguably a lot earlier than that. Mm -hmm. So whatever tools we got. Take them down. Yeah. And it's nice to get to, you know, contribute to the effort while staying on your couch, at least. That's useful. Relatable and also very inclusive for those with disabilities. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. We're talking a lot about Uncanny Valley. So let's keep it going with this BBC News article. Job fished. The con that tricked dozens into working for a fake 
design agency. Huh. Yeah, this one's a little wild and it's a little bit longer, but it starts off with a Zoom call. This has been the reality for many of us during the pandemic. The all staff meeting at the glamorous design agency had been called to welcome the growing company's newest recruits. Its name was Madbird and its dynamic and inspirational boss, Ali Ayad, wanted everyone on the call to be ambitious hustlers, just like him. Mm -hmm. But what people who had turned their cameras on didn't know is that some of the others in the meeting weren't real people at all. They were listed as participants, and some even had active email accounts and LinkedIn profiles, but their names were made up and their headshots belonged to other people. Wow. The entire thing was fake. The real employees had been job fished and the BBC spent a year investigating what happened. Chris Ducey, who is a 27-year-old sales manager based in Manchester, started at Madbird in October 2020, a few months before the Zoom call in question. He would be working from home, but the pandemic was still raging, so that was normal. COVID had upended Chris's life. It cost him his last job, and that's the reason he applied to Madbird. The ad described a human-centered digital design agency born in London, running worldwide. And, you know, that's the kind of boilerplate you hear from a lot of design agencies. Madbird hired more than 50 other people. Most of them worked in sales, some in design, and some were brought in to supervise. Every new joiner was instructed to work from home, doing messaging over email and speaking to each other on Zoom. And the days were long. The 26-year-old named Jordan Carter was credited with being one of the hardest working members of Chris's sales team. In five months, he pitched Madbird to 10,000 possible business clients, hoping to win deals to redesign websites or build apps. And by January 2021, his work ethic had earned him the Employee of the Month title. Woohoo! Madbird's HR department posted job ads online for international sales teams based out of Dubai. And at least a dozen people from Uganda, India, South Africa, and the Philippines and elsewhere were hired. For them, the job represented more than just a paycheck because it tempted them with a UK visa as well. If they had Mm. passed their six-month probation period and met their sales targets, their contract said Madbird would sponsor them to move to the UK. And Ali Ayad knew what it could mean to make a new life in the UK. He often talked to the staff about his past before settling in London. But turns out he had several versions of this story. And I got to say, if you go to the article on the BBC, especially because I had already done the reading for that deep fake real people mm-hmm. on Candy Valley's been crossed, I, I could have sworn that this guy his portraits are deep fakes because he's got the like super manicured hair, the fake everything. It's just, right. it looks so crazy. So, you know, to one person, he introduced himself as a Mormon from Utah in the United States. And to another, he was from Lebanon, where a difficult childhood had taught him how to be a hustler. And even his Ugh. name changed. Sometimes he added a second Y to his surname, spelling it A Y Y A D. And then sometimes he would be Alex A-Y-D. <laughs> but some chapters in the story he told people were consistent. Key above all was the time he spent as a creative designer at Nike. He told everyone about working at the fashion brand's Oregon headquarters in the U.S. And that's where he met Dave Stanfield, Madbird's co-founder. Obviously, the stories didn't seem too far-fetched. He was a smooth operator on video calls, intense, charismatic. He spoke with confidence, sometimes bordering on bullishness. And that's how he persuaded at least three other people to quit other jobs to work for him. 
And they had no reason to doubt him, right? If they did, all they had to do was check his LinkedIn profile that had a ton of endorsements from other colleagues. Like, Ali floored me with how meaningful and thoughtful his approach was. He also compared himself to Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. Elon Musk worked 16 hours a day. I'm trying to do 17. Like, you know the type, right? And for months, the daily business hummed along. More designers were hired to meet the backlog of briefs being negotiated by the sales team. But even before the truth about Madbird was revealed, its workers had a problem because their contracts had been written in an unusual way. They hadn't even been paid yet. And here is what their contracts said. They had all agreed to work on a commission-only basis for the first six months. It was only after they passed their probation period that they would be put on a salary, which was around 47,000 US dollars for most. And until then, they would only earn a percentage of every deal they negotiated. These were all young people looking for work, living through a pandemic. A lot of them felt like they had no choice but to just accept the term in this crappy contract. Mm But no deals were ever finalized. By February 2021, not a single client contract had been signed, and none of the Madbird staff had been paid a penny. Some recruits ended up leaving after a few weeks, but a lot of them stayed. Many had been there for almost six months, forced to take out credit cards, borrow money from family just to stay on top. And the idea was the longer you worked, the harder it became to leave because What if one of those big deals you've been working on came through next week? Mm -hmm. It made no sense to resign if you were just about to finish your probationary period. And for a lot of them, the salary seemed almost right there. So it's obvious now why no one was paid. Madbird had no money coming in, but that wasn't obvious to new staff. They mistakenly assumed their pay contracts were unique and that their line managers must have been on salaries. Besides, Madbird's on the cusp of signing all these deals and money is going to be coming. Until it all crumbled. And Gemma Brett, a 27-year-old designer from West London, she'd only been working for two weeks when she saw something strange. She was kind of curious about what her commute would be like once the pandemic was over. So she looked for the company's office address. And the result she found online looked nothing like the videos on Madbird's website. Gemma contacted an estate agent with a listing at the same address who confirmed her suspicion. This is a purely residential building. So Gemma shared her discovery with another Madbird employee she had gotten to know and trust. Together, the two of them started using online reverse image searches to dig deeper, and they found all the work Madbird claimed as its own had been stolen from elsewhere on the internet, which Mm. meant also the colleagues they'd been messaging didn't exist. And they thought about their options. They thought about leaving quietly without causing a stir. In the end, they decided to send an all-staff email from an alias. Mm. It accused Madbird's founders of unethical and immoral behavior, including stealing the work of others and fabricating team members. The revelations were devastating. Everything they had been doing was built on lies. And it was at this moment that the BBC started to get in and dig a little deeper. So the company, what they found, had not, in fact, been shipping products and experiences locally and globally for 10 years. Turns out Ali Ayad had only registered Madbird with Company's House on the same day he interviewed Chris Ducey to be a sales manager. So the day he's hiring people is when wow. it actually came about. Well, you know, he said he was a hustler and he was. He got the thing 100%. registered and he hired somebody. Same day. <laughs> so there's some other stuff in here goes into deeper detail, like the time Ali Ayad posted a picture of him in GQ where his caption was hustle in silence. Let your success make the noise. And it's him with his like fedora and a shirt that's open. 
Turns out he just photoshopped it. If you look at the actual magazine, it's a watch ad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the BBC actually tracked him down. He basically kind of like shoved them off. And he said, if any of this information came to be true, it's as shocking to me as it's shocking to all of you. <laughs> he was claiming complete ignorance, but he said he would take full responsibility. Oh, sure. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. the closest to a meaningful apology that Madbird staff would get. He stopped answering calls. So, you know. Yeah, he's going to be prosecuted because, yeah, from from a legal standpoint, they signed a contract saying they were working on commission. Uh -huh. If they didn't make any sales, they don't get any commission. Like, he didn't do anything technically wrong. Right. But to claim a job history he didn't have, to yeah. make up employees, to Photoshop himself into GQ. Now you've stepped into the fraud level. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is completely nutty. and. If you want to see what the BBC's confrontation of him looked like, I highly recommend going to the article. It's not going to be as sad. videotape it? There is a video. Watch the moment wow. investigative reporter confronts him. So if you want to check it out, have at it. But otherwise, be real careful. Yeah. I mean, besides any sort of fake company or not, you should never work on commission only for six months. No. That's crazy. Uh -uh. That's just a bad decision, even if Madbird had yeah. been a hugely big, successful company. It, But, I, you know, for yeah. sales startups, I don't think it's probably that uncommon. Probably Startups are isn't. often yeah. using alt comp, including RSUs and stuff like that yeah. to not have to pay a salary. So in this environment, it kind of made sense. It was just total hogwash. Wow. Mad bird. It was in the name. I mean, what can you do? That's right. That's right. Are you mad? <laughs> <Bird>? <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from JSTOR Daily. And it's titled, The Laugh Track, Loathe It or Love It? Ooh. Hmm. I think I loathe it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit. Yeah. You know, I loathe it in principle, yeah. but in practice, like, there is definitely something psychological going on mm -hmm. where I feel like my brain going into, like, this beta wave, semi-hypnotic state of, like, <laughs> yes, the formula, give it to me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's what this article goes into. So, mm -hmm. in 1999, Time magazine called The Laugh Track one of the hundred worst ideas of the 20th century. <laughs> Recorded or canned laughter has been used to sweeten the soundtracks of television situation comedies since 1950. This has been cursed by viewers and especially critics for much of that time. Take, for instance, the 1977 movie Annie Hall, when the character Alvy Singer calls the addition of a tremendous laugh to the audio mix of his friend's TV show nothing less than immoral, <laughs> especially since the joke it's boosting is so weak. <laughs> One origin story points to Bing Crosby's radio show, which ran from 1949 to 1952. This was one of the first radio shows to be recorded on the new magnetic tape technology because Crosby wanted to be free from the tyranny of live broadcasting <laughs> and the necessity of redoing the same show again for the later West Coast broadcast, which mm. I never thought about mm. before. Yeah, yeah, you had to yeah. do the show twice. That's interesting. Yeah. So one of Crosby's guests, comic Bob Burns, told some jokes that made the studio audience laugh uproariously. The jokes, however, were thought entirely too risque to actually broadcast. <laughs> But the laughter itself was gold, saved to be used elsewhere as when uncensored jokes didn't get as many guffaws. Wait a minute. Are you meaning to tell us the original laugh track is a response to blue humor? That's what makes people yeah, laugh. Yeah, at you least some get of them. You gotta get that good laughter in there. Well, okay. So if the good laughter is going blue, then why do we have any kind of censorship at all if the point is to make people laugh? 
Well, if the blue laugh gets a bigger laugh, that okay, never mind. That's the wrong form. I agree with you in principle, but you know, you gotta you gotta think of the children, Angie. What about the poor children with their delicate sensibilities? You're right. Yeah, we've never heard an untoward word come from a much. Yeah, right, right. Children don't tell dirty jokes now. Uh, One of the spookier internet memes I like is how since all of these laugh tracks come from like the 1950s and 60s, a lot of those people are dead now. So that's a thought. (laughs) It does make me a little more open to them knowing that they're all dead. That that makes it better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, For the record, Damn Interesting has never used a laugh track. No. (laughs) Because we just make them ourselves. Yes, I am my own laugh track. I apologize. I know it's uh, a bit much. (laughs) So for TV, Charles Douglas's Laugh Box of 1953 became the industry standard until the 1980s when stereophonic laugh tracks became available. Though loathed by many, laugh tracks are still regularly used, and not just for situational comedies. An audio mix is complex production that can include music and sound effects dubbed in retakes and audience reactions, which need not be limited to laughter. Even when no laugh track is used, a studio audience's reactions may still be edited for the final mix. Scholar Kenneth L. Brewer writes that critiques of laugh tracks have had three main points, that they are coercive, that they dumb down the audience, and that they're deceptive. He argues that these takes date to the 1950s and presume a passive, if not zombified, audience. And he argues that audiences were never such suckers. (laughs) That's optimistic. Yeah, (laughs) you know, that one's, uh, you know, I'll let you put your own conclusions about that. So I kind of want to go on a brief tangent because I watched a YouTube video by Drew Gooden where he reviews the many, many American Idol remixes of Hmm. just all these different takes on the show. And one show in particular he focused in on because he realized that because it was shot during the pandemic, they actually reused the (gasps) same footage of the audience reactions from the time before the pandemic happened while they were filming. (sighs) But they used it for the period where all of the contestants were, you know, doing their thing without the audience. And so it feels super weird and forced. Yeah. I mean, the performer is going to have less energy if there isn't anyone else in the room. It is going to be a different type of performance. Yeah. Yeah. And when you watch it, it's super uncanny, too. Like, very uncanny valley of, you know, American Idol remix shows. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, I thought that was very interesting and related here. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. Well, I've got another one from Wired, which is a little less depressing than the last one, but not by much. (laughs) This one's called The Quiet Way Advertisers Are Tracking Your Browsing. And it's sort of a good news, bad news situation. The good (laughs) news is that cookies that track your online data are apparently on the way out, at least according to this article. Major web browsers have started restricting them. And of course, the EU has been putting in place those laws that allow users to opt out of them entirely. Although I have to say, when every single website pops up a banner, there's like, do you accept the cookie? Do you accept the cookie? (laughs) I just click yes, because I'm just tired. Yeah, (laughs) uh uh-huh. It's a surrender. It's the cookie surrender. It is, yes. (laughs) The bad news is that big data companies don't really need your cookies anymore. Mm. Instead, they're relying more and more on something called fingerprinting. And I know we have a lot of tech-savvy listeners, and I'm sure Way already knows everything I'm about to explain. <sighs> but for people like me out there, whose technology is pretty much summed up by turning it off and on again, fingerprinting is a way of identifying you on the internet 
based on certain data points about your device that when taken individually aren't very useful, but when combined form a nearly unique identifier of who you are. So let's say you visit a website, right? You're going to be just one of thousands of people using, say, a Dell Inspiron 1550 laptop. And you're also just one of thousands of people running Windows 10 with Service Pack 2 installed. And you're also just one of thousands of people using the Firefox browser to go to the site. But if you look at the Venn diagram of people using that machine with that operating system and that browser, the numbers start to get a lot smaller. And when you combine this with even more seemingly innocuous data points, like the language you're set to, your keyboard layout, your time zone, you eventually end up with a string of data that is genuinely recognizable from site to site as you. Yeah. And multiple studies have shown, in fact, that about 80 to 90 percent of browser fingerprints are completely unique. Meanwhile, another study from 2020 found that about 25 percent of the world's top 10,000 websites are already running fingerprinting scripts. And by the way, most fingerprinting data is still collected even when you're browsing in incognito mode. So you can't escape. They know who you are. They know where you're going. Don't commit crimes on the Internet. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. And to be fair, fingerprinting can sometimes be a good thing. It's one of the ways, for example, that a bank can be sure that you're really you and not someone trying to commit fraud on your account. Mm -hmm. But regardless of whether it's being used for legitimate purposes, the fact is there's very little you can do to stop websites from fingerprinting you. You know, it's not like cookies where you can say, don't collect them or clear out my cookie cache. You are who you are. Your computer data is there speaking to the website. One somewhat effective method is to use a browser that specifically blocks that information from being sent, such as the Tor browser. But a lot of websites simply don't work if Mm -hmm. you're using an anonymous browser like Tor. And it's developed such a reputation for people doing shady things with it that (laughs) the simple fact that you're using it is itself a big red flag (laughs) for certain entities who want to know who you are and what you're doing. There's another browser called Brave, which tries to solve the problem in the other direction by flooding the system with randomized bad data. But again, this breaks some websites. And like I said, I know it's bad, but I've basically given up on any hope of privacy online. (laughs) I mean, I genuinely hope someone solves the problem because I think privacy is a good thing. But I'm too addicted to the websites I want to go to. I'm going to go. Yeah, I used to work at a company that was involved in... You could think of it as ad tech related. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much, but (laughs) essentially their entire business model was interacting with all of these ad companies that aggregate your data and shuttle it back and forth between all of their databases. And I mean, there are literally dozens of ad companies that you've never heard of that do nothing but ship user data and fingerprint data, cookies, purchasing records, stuff like that back and forth in order to identify who you are and show you a picture of an ad on a page. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's just ridiculous. So I am very cynical (laughs) about all of this stuff at this point. As you should be. Yeah. Well, it's like it's one of those things where, you know, it's evil, but also, you know, better than anybody that there's nothing we the average person can do to stop it. It's, you know, they have some quotes in the article from professionals who are basically like, look, we would love to stop this. And we're doing our best to put those sort of things in our browser while still not breaking most of the Internet for people using our browser. But they know it would be really helpful if regulators could just say this is illegal. Don't do it, because then (laughs) at least, you know, you would have some basis for attempting to stop it. 
But until they do that, we'll have to wait for something really catastrophic to happen to require and necessitate the toggling of real privacy. Or just attrition. Like if all of the older lawmakers who don't understand the Internet die and the rest of us <laughs> age up enough that we can be old people in Congress, then, you know, maybe the laws will change in another 20, 30 years. There you go. Entropy to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Spain's ingenious water maze, Curiosity Rover finds a bizarre rock on Mars that looks like a flower, and why in the year of our Lord 2022 am I still getting robocalls? So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We will be off next week for spring break, but we will return on the 18th. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisbert Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>